Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 107 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so that you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. Now, today's guest is a rock guitarist whose career really took off in the 80s playing with Doro Pesh in her band Warlock and then when she went under the name Doro too. But it's his long-standing 20-year-plus association as Dokken's lead guitar player that he's best known for. I am, of course, talking about John Levin. Dokken have a new album out now. It's called Heaven Comes Down, available everywhere you get your music, so please do check that out. Musically gifted from a very early age, John was inspired by the guitar gods Hendrix, Clapton, Van Halen and the likes. His first break came when he was just 22 years old with Warlock, headlining stadium tours in Europe at such a young age. He later effectively became George Lynch's long-term replacement in Dokken, but in between became an entertainment lawyer, family lawyer, and ran his own label too. So this chat is another fascinating one as we dive into his history from that prodigious musical young age, what it was like working with Doro and her band and the fame, then the grunge years that came along and he sidestepped the world of being a musician and then what pulled him back and he's honest to say that if he'd known who he was auditioning for he probably would never have gone through with it. We hear about the Sliding Doors moment, a steakhouse mix-up that could have seen it all go wrong before it even begun, and how he felt taking over from Mr Nasty, George Lynch, working and writing with Doc and his relationship with Don, um, trying to keep the feel of the original band at heart whilst recording new albums. He also addresses the criticism Don Dokken receives for his vocal style, and we hear all about the band's new album, Heaven Comes Down, how it came together and what it means to John, his fourth record with the band, which is out now. He's a fun, honest character, so I know you're going to enjoy this one. So here's my chat with Dokken guitarist, John Levin. 
And I'm delighted to be joined on VRP Rocks by the wonderful John Levin from Dokken. Dokken have got a brand new album out and we're looking forward to hearing all about that. But as always on VRP Rocks, we like to hear more about the, the, the person as well, the individual artist and their history and their stories too. So John, we're going to take you back to when you were very young. Now, you as a youngster, four or five, you picked up the, the piano and then the violin and then the trumpet and you finally found the guitar. So obviously you're very musically talented, you're very versatile. So was it something from a very early age that you you kind of thought and you recognized it was what you wanted to do with your life uh you know for some reason like for me music just came really naturally to me and um and and learning in school was hard um not not actually i was good in math but like um english and reading i had a really really difficult time with reading comprehension you know i i hit sixth grade and like my parents probably finally figured out why he can't read like it wasn't that i couldn't read but i couldn't pay attention you know, I have um, like a horrible, horrible attention deficit. And back in those days, like no one really understood that, you know, but for the part of my brain that was had a real, you know, learning perception problem with that, I had no problem for some reason with music. Like it would, it was very, it just came really natural to me. So there was that some sort of, some sort of a dichotomy there. So with the, with the music, you know, I was, we had a piano in my living room growing up. There was like nothing else in the living room, but just piano, to be honest, you know, and my older sister would play. She took lessons and she was playing like uh, classical pieces, you know, and I was just a really young, three or four or something like that I was little. Wow. And I started to fiddle around a little bit on there. Um, and then um, from there, I started to take some violin lessons in school. And, you know, I was probably in second grade for violin and I couldn't really I played a little bit. But then I got on to trumpet and I became a good horn player. Um, and I did that for however old you are in fourth, fifth and sixth. Four, well, actually, from fourth grade through the end of high school, I played trumpet. But I found a guitar in the basement when I was nine. And um, I guess my, mo- my mom had some nylon string guitar. She didn't know how to play it or anything, but she had it. And then once I, I, I found that, um, I noodled around a little on it. And I had a friend of mine who I, I used to go to, you know, over to his house. And it was probably I was a kid, you know. And he had an electric guitar with an amp, a little amp and an electric guitar, and this book of the Beatles complete. Um, I remember it really. It was like a black book, like this thick, and it had like a whole ton of songs in there. And of course, I was familiar with some of the Beatles songs because, you know, who wasn't, even a, a, as a really young kid? And I just saw the uh, the tablature writing, how, you know, how they would write out chords on with lines. So, And I just immediately took to that. And um, I was playing pretty much right away just by that. You know, and then took it from there. I got my first electric guitar at 11. And yeah, that, that's the, how it started. Wow, incredible. So uh, obviously you're young, you're, you're playing along with the Beatles and things, but who were your kind of early inspirations then when it came to guitar? Uh, you know, it, it came in phases for me. Um, the, the first inspirations that really got me as a player, got me better as a player, were Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. And I'll, I'll explain to you how that happened. See, for, for guitar, it's one thing to play basic chords, like in the first position, you know. Um, but then once you get into bending and putting vibrato on a note, which is really what defines someone's personality as a player, is really how they bend in their vibrato, what they sound like, you know. That that's a very big learning curve to go from that from chords to bending with vibrato. Like that's a very big transition. And what got me to that was uh, learning Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. Like I learned that crossroads solo. <laughs> when I was in seventh grade, sixth grade, but, and I was, I was still to this day, I can, I can grab the guitar and play that like note for note. 
Like it was, in, it just buried into my head. I learned that one and I learned like probably Purple Haze and a few other ones. And, th- and that got me into the bending. And then, you know, sure enough, one day I'm 14 or 15 and someone plays me Eruption. And I was, that was the end of, then I was completely like, I, I it was, I didn't even, I, I, I didn't believe it was a guitar when I heard that. Yeah. Completely unique, isn't it? Absolutely. Just a quick question. Uh, the kind of you mentioned in Van Halen there. I've got one here from Play Disc Golf on YouTube. He says, uh, I know you're a big fan of Eddie Van Halen. What's your favorite Eddie solo and what's your favorite Van Halen song? Oh, wow. So if I had to pick one song, I, I, I'm going to pick um, Mean Streets. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to pick uh, Unchained. Actually, yeah. Unchained would be my favorite yeah. song, although it's all such genius. You know, one thing, if you go back and listen to everything, anything Ed did, it doesn't matter what, anything, listen to any solo, anything he did. Some guitar players have like moments of brilliance. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and then there's other moments where it's like, okay, with, with Ed Van Halen, it, every single microsecond, every nanosecond of what he touched on guitar was brilliant. Yeah. Um, that was that to me. That's why he was, you know, he was here. And then, and then the next level of great players was like down here. And there's a whole bunch of guys down here, but to me, he was the only one there, you know, and, and, and that's what it was for him, for, for me with him. I mean, it was just, he got, he was just absolute magic. Did you ever get to meet him at all? We put, we got the privilege of opening up for Van Halen. I think it was 2015. We did a gig together. We opened for them. Um, and I meet him. I met him very briefly. I got a, we have a photo together, uh, but you know, I was standing on the side of the stage watching him. Um, a, a mutual friend of ours was, was Ed's and you know main person, right hand man, and he brought me up there to watch. You know, and uh, at one point in the show, Ed came over to me and 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 like and whispered and like said something, whispered into my like tried to talk into my ear while he had to, but I couldn't hear him. <laughs> you know, because it was so loud. But I have no idea what he said. Maybe he was saying something like, get off the stage. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. He was smiling. <laughs> he was happy and smiling. And he, he leaned over and said something to me, but I just don't know what it was. Oh, incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. And, and just moving forward a few years, obviously, uh, you went to college. Your, your parents, I think, wanted a teacher. And was one a doctor or something like that or a lawyer? Yeah, dad was a dentist and mom was a teacher. Yeah, oh, there you go. So, so the college was kind of the only route for you, but you you ended up dropping out of college to become a musician. So, how yeah. tough a conversation was that with your parents at the time? That didn't go over well. You know, that was a very <laughs> big turning point for for you know, I guess in everyone's life, if you look back on your life, you, there's always a few moments that really uh, set you on a, a path, right or left. Like if you're at a fork, you know what I mean. So, um, you know, my parents came from educated backgrounds. I, I worked really hard to get into this business school. My dad wanted me to be a doctor. I didn't want to do that. I couldn't stand the sight of blood, to be honest, you know, as a kid. Um, and it wasn't for me. So I, I was going to go to this business school. It was, you know, four-year degree. But after two years, I got into the program, and then I decided I didn't want to do it. I, I met some other guys. They were all – as a kid, I always had a tendency to play with older guys than me. You know, and I met these guys, They and um, we, start, we did a demo. I was 19, and it came out really good. Uh, we had like a little 45 we pressed it was two songs and then um next thing you know we started a band and i decided you know what i, I gotta go for this and um i had to go back home and say to my parents I'm, I'm not going back to college so i dropped out and that's that's what put me on the path to where i got to today because what happened was we played in the clubs in long island the band got some notoriety we started selling out and um 
that's what led me to get the call into Doro's band because uh, Tommy Henriksen, who who was in Doro's band at the time, um, called me. Either he called me or Joey Ballon called me first. But regardless, that that's how I got it because Tommy saw me play at a club, and that's what set my whole music career in motion. Absolutely. And you mentioned Warlock there and Doro. You you joined them um, kind of after the big break from the Triumph and, and Agony album, didn't you? So how was that for being part of that band at that time? Oh, it was great because, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of musicians struggle many, many stepping stones to get from playing in clubs to playing in an arena. And and for me, um, I just went from club, boom, uh, opening for Ozzy Osbourne. So, you know, and I was only 22 or 23. So wow. that was a pretty big thing. You know, we, our first tour was that my first world tour I did was a headlining tour. So that was pretty good, you know. So is that kind lucky. of dream come true moments then? Obviously, you're 22, you're headlining in, in stadiums <laughs> and world tours and stuff. I mean, how bizarre is that? Yeah, it was pretty surreal. Um, what the, the, for me, the, one of the greatest things about it, frankly, was that my parents calmed down once, you know, we did the videos and got on MTV and all that. And then then they, they it calmed them down, which was good, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they saw it was an actual real thing that you were doing, yeah. Yeah, all of a sudden, they, I knew it was going to work out when my dad one day came home with a whole bunch of luggage for me. Like, he bought, bought me nice luggage saying, hey, you're going to need this, you know? I'm thinking, okay, he, that's really nice, you know? It's a nice touch. It's a nice touch indeed. Um, and then, obviously, from from Warlock, you, you worked with Doro on her solo stuff, Force Majeure, and again, that was another big record. I mean, was was being on that record and recording on that record was that your first real taste of being in a studio? Then, because obviously, you'd done bits with, before with your, your earlier bands, but was that your kind of first taste of, of almost the big time? Yeah, that was my first real album I did uh, was Force yeah. Majeure. I mean, up to that point, I probably actually recorded about an album or so's worth of material in a real studio so we, we did um in, in the club band i was in we had some backing and um we probably did about one album's worth of properly recorded things so i had s- some experience you know but that the, the warlock thing was definitely my first real experience i mean we did it at the right track studios in new york i don't probably it's not even there anymore but that was a famous place you know right there on 47th street where all the music stores were or 48th street i think yeah 48th and um yeah it was great you know and and talk to me about doro as well because um obviously she's one of the real pioneers for for women in metal and she was obviously huge across here in europe obviously and uh, what was she like to work with and what was her aura like at the time she's wonderful i, I mean you're not going to find she's like one of the hardest working people in rock and roll. I mean, every performance she would do was like balls to the wall, pedal to the metal. Like she would give a hundred and fifty percent. Like there was no like, you know, she she was she she just went for it. There was no phoning it in with her, you know, and she stills like that. I mean, I saw her and I and I see videos of her on YouTube. I mean, she she's like incredible. And I've got a question here from uh, Richard Lundberg is the next one. He says, uh, how would you sum up your time with Warlock and Doro? Um, really wonderful. Uh, the band was great. It was Bobby Rondelli on drums, Tommy Henriksen on guitar. Um, gr- it was a great, great experience. Um, loved, being, you know, I think the tour was great that we did together. Um, proud of the, how the album came out. I mean, it was, what's great about, you know, having albums from your past is like there's a good snapshot in time so like you can go back and say okay like this is where my head was musically at that point in time you know 
Um, so it, it allowed me to sort of document that too, you know, but great. It was just great. Great. Wonderful experience. And then, um, yeah, moving forward a couple of years, obviously the whole kind of grunge movement, the swell of it. And I, I've heard you say before that um, after Nirvana hit the scene, it kind of it did away with guitarists who like to do solos and all that sort of stuff. So you, you took a different path at this stage, didn't you? You went down the, the law school route and became an entertainment lawyer and a family lawyer eventually yeah. and, and things like that. Um, did you think at that stage that your musical career was, was maybe over then? Uh, I, I definitely did. When I went to law school, I really didn't play guitar much. I studied so hard. I, I mean, you know, I, I just wanted to do this. And as soon as the grunge thing came, there was no more of that. You know, it, in fact, it like wasn't even cool to do solos anymore. You know, and, and, and not that was it's not that I didn't like that music. There's some wonderful songs from that era. It just wasn't what I wanted to play. So I just looked at it as like, wow, like everything I, I ever worked for and wanted to do no longer exists in the world you know um so my, i was on the phone my i'm with my dad and he said to me well yeah he goes to me you have two choices you can either um go work in the record store or go to law school so like that, that was the gap in his mind that that was the gamut record store law school <laughs> there was nothing in between it was just those two things you know so um you know i just was concerned about having no money because when i, I moved out to los angeles i, I didn't have any money I lived in a two bedroom apartment with three people, you know, the singer and the band that had a time slept on the couch. You know, we were all waking up at um, four 30 in the morning to go sell, you know, computer parts over a, a boiler operation. You know what I mean? It was tough just to make, you know, if you were lucky, you know, I'd make enough to pay my rent for the month. I think my rent was like $300. Jeez. Yeah. Shows you, doesn't it? Well, a question here from Johnny Riggs, which you might have answered, but he says, uh, did you keep up with your guitar playing while you are out of the scene? I know you said you didn't do much while you're in, in law school, but while you were practicing, did you did you keep up with your guitar then? And or was it like riding a bike when you were asked to come back? Uh, I played on law in law school, you know, I played during the weekends just in my room, just as a break for an hour, sometimes here and there, once a week, maybe once every two weeks. After law school, once I, you know, I graduated law school in 96, I opened up my own practice right away. And it was in 90. Um, I met Jeff Pilsen around that time because through, through Tommy Hendrickson. So we knew each other and I, I knew, and I know Jeff knew I was a guitar player. So, um, 98 came about, so it wasn't too much longer after that. Plus I had a record label for a minute there, but between 96 or 97 and 98, you know, 98 was when the Dawkins and call came. And, and and at that point between '96 and '98, Frank, well, even from like from when I started law school '93 to '98, I had very limited guitar playing at that point. You know, I, I wasn't playing all that much. So when the Dokken call came, you know, I was almost not. I did, first of all, I didn't know it was for Dokken, and um, you know, I wasn't really in practice or anything. And did you miss it? Uh, I think I got to a point where in my heart at that time, I resolved that the music career was behind me and I was comfortable with it. Like I, I had short hair, cut my hair off. I co-owned a record label with a friend of mine. A, a, we had a real record label. Like we had bands signed to major labels through it, you know, through us in the office space and the whole thing. And, um, you know, I just was more into the business. And I, 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 in my mind, my music career as a player was behind, me. you know. But that wasn't to be. And as you said, nope. you, you knew Jeff, you met Jeff, and then you got the call from Jeff. So, yeah. so tell us uh, how that story came about. Okay, I'll try and give you a quick version. Um, uh, after work, I'm in a suit 
go to my dad's. I had an office in Century City here in Los Angeles. Go to my dad's place 10 minutes away from there to have supposed to have dinner at his place. Um, check my office voicemail. Jeff called. There was a call from Jeff. And the call from my recollection said something like, hey, you know, we're in the studio. We, we need a guitar player to play some solos. Our guitar player quit. Would you be able to come down and play? So uh, my, I hung up the phone after checking my messages. My dad said to me, anything interesting? I'm like, yeah, I, you know, a friend of mine asked me to come play some guitar solos, but I'm not going to go. He's like, my dad's like, go. I'm like, I'm not going to go. I'm not, I haven't touched, I haven't have hardly play anymore. He pushed me into it. And, and Jeff didn't say it was for Dawkins on that message. Or, or had, had he done so, or had I heard that, I would never have gone because I would have been too... Yeah, I'm not going to play with Doc, and I haven't played guitar in years. So I went down there. I drove down to to a Redondo Beach. It was Don's studio. I didn't know that at the time. I was in. I was still in the suit, you know. So um, I knocked on the door, and then Don opened the door, and then just had a Les Paul in his hand and threw a Les Paul to me at, at me, you know, and said, "Here, play." And um, I, I said to him, "Can I hear the tracks first? And he said, "No, it's in E, just solo." So I was like, okay, didn't want to let me hear it. <laughs> so they hit play, and um, pretty quickly I played two solos. I did one for a song called The Irish Song and one for what was a demo of The Maddest Hatter. That, that version of The Irish Song was released, released in Japan. And then that's how that started. Then a couple of weeks later, Jeff called me again and said, hey, we're headlining the Dallas Starplex July 4th. Can you learn all these songs and do the gig? And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. And that's, that's how it started. That was 98. There's more to the story if you want. I don't know how deep you want to get. There's some more interesting twists, but that was part one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to say before we get to part two then, um, have you ever spoken to Don about what his first th feelings and thoughts are? Because obviously, what is it, your first seven seconds of meeting somebody, you form an impression, and then you walk in with your, uh, with your suit and your short hair. Is, well, I wonder what he thought of you, uh, your initial appearance. You know what? That's a great question. I've never asked him what he thought. I just assumed what he would have thought. I, I assumed he must have been when Jeff said, oh, my friend John, he's a lawyer, he's going to come down and play, I, Don must have been, I would think Don must have been like, what? Come on. He, I, I would think he'd be skeptical. But now that I know Don so well, um, he doesn't think like most other people. Like, he's a lot more open-minded to talent. I, 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 mean, I mean, I know he said, he said, we've had discussions before, and, and like, he, 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 he believes, like, you know, talent comes in all shapes, sizes, and forms, you know, it doesn't, you know. So I think that's what made him more open to it. Interesting, interesting. Now I wonder if this is part two. Um, I, I heard a funny story you once told about um, a steakhouse mix-up. Is that was the early days of Doc and I? You almost missed that. That was yeah. Go and tell us. That's part two. <laughs> yeah. So um, we were rehearsing for that July Fourth Dallas Starplex show, and Jeff was coming to my. He came to my house a couple of times, and we rehearsed in Don's studio a couple of times. And then um, the Don said, "Hey, you know, we're going to play." for my birthday I, he owned a club don it was called the redondo beach Steakout. Steakout. Yeah. and john, don's birthday is june 29th it's like you know he called me up and you know i was a little taken aback of speaking to don and i don't know redondo beach down here it's very confusing down there i'm not from that area and he told me really quickly like where to go with the directions and i tried to write it down really fast um, and I thought he said steakhouse, not steak out. <laughs> so I drove down there with my girlfriend, Kim, at the time. And after looking around for an hour and a half, couldn't find anything, stopping in a gas station, trying to 
you know, find out where to go. I said to her, all right, forget it. Let's just go home. And had I missed that show, I'm sure they would have been like, forget it. You know, a guy doesn't show up for a gig. He's done. Um, so we're driving home and Kim said to me, hey, what are all those people doing in that parking lot out there? Wait, wait is, it the, is it the stakeout? I'm like, that's got to be it. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, she found it. That's fate smiling down upon you. Absolutely. Yeah, that was just luck. Definitely. And uh, another question that you probably get asked an awful lot, and it's a, a natural one to ask probably, but um, George Lynch, his work with the band is obviously synonymous with the early success and everything like that. I mean, obviously an incredible guitarist as well. Did you feel any pressure when you stepped into that spot knowing that uh, George was uh, a major part of uh, the early success of the band? <clears throat> you know, that's for some reason, that's just one thing about how my mind works, that it, 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 didn't, it doesn't affect me like that. For, for whatever reason, like it didn't, I guess had I, you know, had I thought about it and tripped out on it, maybe it could have, but for whatever reason, like that, my personality doesn't do that luckily. So it, it didn't, it didn't affect me that way. I'm a huge fan of George's and his talent, but I never like got into that headspace of, do you know what I'm saying? To, to try and like trip out on, on, on getting nervous about that whole factor. You know, I seem to always just in my life in general, even as a lawyer, like, for some reason, I seem to like do well under pressure. Usually, like it's it seems to. I in fact, not only do it, I usually can't even get things done until I feel some sort of pressure. To be honest, like if I don't feel pressure, I won't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, the the first album you did with Doc and then Hell to Pay. Um, what was the creative process like with that record then? Because obviously you're quite new through the door at that stage. Was it easy or difficult to get your ideas across? Um, uh, well, on that one, we did it at Don's. Don, Don was living out in the valley uh, in Newberry Park at the time. So I would drive out to his house and we'd work in his studio or his studio up. He had his studio built in there. Um, but, you know, I was new to the band, so I was more I was less reluctant to be vocal or to say opinions. You know, I, I collaborated on those songs with Don, but I, I was more timid in terms of saying what i think we should do and on the, the follow-up to that on the lightning strikes again I, that i said to don man we got to do like something that fits inside the dock and camp you know let's you know and he said to me i, I don't know how to do that he's like john the, you don't understand like i wrote those songs however like 30 years ago was at the time or whatever i went whatever however many years it had been so i said to him you know what let me make you like a mix of all those old tunes just throw it on in your car and get get your head maybe back into that headspace, you know. And then I started playing him riffs, ideas I had that I felt, you know, could not not like rip off riffs. Like I had the riff to Oasis, for example, you know. <clears throat> and and then you know he heard it, and that we went from there. Interesting question, kind of follow up there from from one of the subscribers, Mark Rice. He says, "Dawkins, my favorite group of all time. How do you balance the iconic back catalog of songs with the desire to create new music that resonates with a modern audience and the old faithful like me?" Um, you know, that's a great question, and it, it isn't the easiest thing to do because you don't want to like start ripping off and recreating. You know, so we we that it's that's never a good idea. It's got to be genuine and. Um, I personally feel like on this newest album, we managed to accomplish it. And it wasn't by design. It just It just organically happened. You know, if you try to do something, sometimes it can sound too forced. But, you know, that's just that's a really good question. And especially true with the set, because if we we're going to start playing some of these new songs, but then it becomes the question of, well, then what do you take out? You know, so, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll add in 
gypsy or whatever. And what do we, what do we take out then? You know, you're going to eat certain, you know what I mean? So it's someone's happy. Someone's not happy. So in terms of Lightning Strikes Again and Broken Bones, the albums that followed, um, you said you're a bit timid on the first record that you did. So what was it like, the writing process between you and Don for those ones then? Are you more kind of coming up with stuff and giving them to him and saying, this is what we do or we should do on, this? On Lightning Strikes Again, um, I, I would have riff ideas, you know. For example, like I had the Oasis riff. Usually I could have a, a riff and like a verse or something. I wasn't recording anything onto Pro Tools at that point for, for Lightning Strikes Again. Because I figured, let me just get a whole bunch of things I feel like are ideas that are in the camp and see if anything triggers with Don. So I would go to his place. I'm like, hey, man, I got a couple ideas. Let me play this for you. And with Don, like if I play an idea and he instantaneously starts singing something, we know he got something to work on. So uh, that's how I would approach it. And, uh, you know, he he also would play guitar and sometimes and play me ideas. Yeah, I got this or, or I'd play a riff and then he'd say, that's cool for the verse. I'm hearing this. And then he'd play me something and we would collaborate like that. Um, this latest record, of course, was done completely differently due to the COVID thing, but that's how we did Broken Bones and Lightning Strikes Again. We collaborated in a room together and, and made demos. The old fashioned way, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, that's how we did it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're mentioning the new album, Heaven Comes Down. It's uh, the band's 13th album. It's uh, your fourth album with the group as well. It's out now. It's got some some really good reviews. I've got a couple here to read out. Blabbermouth said the most enjoyable album the band have made in a long time. Ultimate Classic Rock says the whole album rattles windows in a good way. I like that one. That's really nice. Uh, so tell us about <laughs> this. Cool. You said it was written during COVID time. So so tell us all about yeah. this new album. Well, on this one, see, my biggest problem with like... Um, Pro Tools has always been, I, I was never able to overcome how to do drums. In the, you know, I had studios in the past, but I always had, I had a drum machine, like this little Roland R5 or whatever. And I was really good at programming drums on that. And um, I lost the power cable to it and I threw the, the whole unit out. And, and I never was able to overcome, like, how do I do drums and Pro Tools? How do you do drums and Pro Tools? I got programs, I couldn't figure them out. I mean, loops, I couldn't, just couldn't figure out how to do it. So I never, finally, my Tommy Henriksen, who's still a good friend of mine today, who I played with in Warlock, I, he was at my house. I'm like, Tommy, man, show me how to do drums. He's like, yeah, it's easy. He's like, he, he's like, you got some samples? I'm like, yeah, I got samples from wherever. He's like, okay, pull up. He showed me here. You take this, put it here. You just build one little piece at a time, and then you can duplicate it and add fills. I'm like, that's it. And I, once I learned how to do it, I was on because I had amassed such a huge collection of stuff I've written in my handheld. Like any times I'd, I'd write a, an idea, I'd record it onto my iPhone to the notes, you know? And, and I would label them like, oh, good idea for docking, you know? So I just started going through those and I was like so excited because now I was able to do drums. I had a bass here because Don left the, left the bass for me. And I'm like, wow, I could do full, full on demos. So I just started like recording like mad because during COVID there was not, nothing really else to do. And I really got into like myself and, and to, into the writing process I, every day I was writing even in the morning like I used to think I was just a night owl and I would and I, ideas would usually come at night which sometimes they do like in my twilight or in my sleep you know but mm-hmm. I started I was watching a Michael Shanker video and he's like yeah I write early in the morning I was like wow how does he write early in the morning so you know what I started like um as soon as I get up grabbing a guitar and I found you know what that really worked I'm, I'm actually clearer for music in the, in the early morning so I would just work all day, come up with ideas. I like something, man. Okay, put put this one down. And I would demo full demos. Um, 
some of them like complete from A to Z, the whole thing. Um, and a lot of those, I, I did that for a lot of the songs. Other ones I did just till the solo section and then finished them later. But for like Gypsy and Fugitive, I demoed those from start to finish, sent them to Don. Wow. You know, later on, he came out here after the vaccine became available. And then he worked here. And like the incredible thing with Don as a writer is like, he, we set up a mic for him. And first listening of like Fugitive, I put it on, boom, he starts singing the, the lyrics right, right off the cuff. Like, just like that. And some of those parts he sang right there off the cuff are on the album, are the actual recordings, you know? Oh, wow. So that's how it went. That's how we did this one. Don, on on uh, Santa Fe, Don that, did that alone. I had nothing to do with that one. Um, and on Like a Rose, that, that was a track that Don had. He had music to that and lyrics and melodies. And I rewrote the, some of the music. I rewrote the guitar track to that. That's how we did this album out of necessity because there was no other way to do it with covid <laughs> now you do it through correspondence yeah yeah that was the way wasn't it but in terms of the timing then um was it covid that kind of i don't know gave you the impetus to make the record because i think that the previous records you'd done there'd been like a four-year gap between and obviously between covid and the last album was, was maybe eight and we're a few years on from then so was it covid that gave you the kick to to do this new record uh i think covid gave personally gave me the inspiration to do it but but I'll be quite honestly, what gave me the ability to do it was Tommy showing me how to program drums into Pro Tools. No, I'm dead serious. But without the ability to do that, it was going to have to be done. You got to get an engineer into my house to work. And we you can't because there's a lockdown. So how are we going to do this? So see what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas always in the past, if I had an idea, I had a Pro Tools studio for um, for Lightning Strikes Again. Because we recorded a lot of that guitar tracks, all the guitar tracks in my apartment, actually, when I lived, where I lived at the time. But Don would hire an engineer that would sit with me and record everything, you know, so I didn't have to deal with that. But on this one, because of COVID, we couldn't do it like that. No, nobody could be around anyone. Mm -hmm. So it was really getting over that hurdle of learning how to how to program drums for me that led me to be able to do it. So given everything yeah, I wanted you, to do it. I was going to say given everything that you've talked about there and and you learning the process and being really hands-on with everything. So you must be incredibly proud of this record then having having finally got it finished. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. You know when you're when you're in it, we finished it about a year ago, okay. you know, or something like that. So I, I didn't listen to it for the for like a year because by the when you finish an album, like you know Don always says records aren't uh finished, they're abandoned. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So when we uh, abandoned the album, you, you, at that point, you're like, I've heard each mix, you know, so many times. It's like, in, you know, we had we had mastered this record four different times. It's like, okay, do you like one, two, three? I'm sending it to you now. You know, it's like by the time you're done, it's just like I I don't want to hear this anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I got I got to get away from it. So when I got back to it, which was like two months ago or so, I, I started listening to it again. I started listening to it again after not having heard of it so long when we were going to shoot the video for Fugitive. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know how to I don't have to play any of these parts. <laughs> you know, I don't, even, I don't remember. I have to learn the lead. I don't know what I did. Um, so I started listening to it again. And then for me, a lot of the songs started taking on a life of their own. Like they became their own entity. And I think once that happens, that they be, you know, they, they become their own thing which is really good. Like you hear it with different ears when you don't listen to something for so long, you know, you can listen back to it and you can hear, you hear it from a different perspective, a fresh perspective, yeah. you know, 
And that's how I knew I really, wow, I really, I really liked what we did here. Good yeah. stuff. Um, we've mentioned Don a few times in his vocals and stuff. I've got to ask you the question because it's something that a lot yeah. of people talk about and, and, and Don has to address it himself as well. A lot of criticism comes his way because he doesn't sound this, how he did in his, his 20s. I mean, um, he's faced a lot of criticism. He, he answers back. I mean, yeah. what, what's your say on, on the way that Don, Don sings now? I always, would, you know, when every time this subject came up, I said, Don, you're, you're you know, however old, sick at the time we did this record. I'm like, you're 68. I mean, it's not fair for anyone to expect you to be singing like you did when you're 20. And even if you could, really, are you going to start like doing high screens at 68 years old? I mean, that's not who you are at this point. You know, just be you, you know. And 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 I think that this is a wonderful depiction of, you know, you can music is, is emoting, right? It's portraying an emotion, right? You don't have to scream at the top of your lungs in order to do that. I mean, if you look back to the old Doc and stuff, is it really him screaming at the top of his lungs that transferred the emotion mainly? Or is it the quality of his voice and the, how he delivered the lines and the, and the, uh, the lyrical content? You, you know what I'm saying? You could, there's so many bands where the singer screams his head off, but the songs stink. I mean, does it matter? So whenever I hear someone saying, oh, well, he can't sing the high notes, they were, does it really matter? Let me ask you, here's, let me give you an analogy. Um, certain artists paint with a, t- a ton of colors, and they may be able to make it a beautiful painting out of that, right? But then there's other artists that can paint with pencil, draw with a pencil, and it's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, right? So it's not necessarily how many colors you have in your box of crayons, right? It's what you do with it. And I, I think just from a melody and lyrical perspective on this record, I think this is the best, some of the best stuff he's ever done. I mean, if you listen to the, to the ballad, um, Never Give Up, um, I, I, I said to him, Don, I, I think this is one of your best vocal performances ever. You know, it just carries so much emotion in it. Yeah, high praise indeed. Now, obviously, you've known him for... A- You've known him for a long time. I mean, how does he yeah. how does he take that criticism? Because I think a few years ago it sounded he was a bit spiky about it, but I think he's a bit more laid back about it now. Um, whenever it would come up, I would just this is the, the discussion we would have is just what I just would say to you. I'm like, you know, anyone who says that it's ridiculous, you know, that that has nothing to do with how much emotion you transfer in a, in a musical composition, how how high you sing, and so for a guitar player, are you transferring more emotion by how fast you play? Some guys can play one note and it's just like, wow, right? Play one note, play one note and play one note. Great. You know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing fast. Obviously I do it too, but you know, when, when and how you do it, right. It's just all, it all is about what is being carried forward in, in the music, the the emotion of it, you know, that's how I, how I feel about it. And there you go. So the brand new album is out now for everyone to listen to. I recommend everyone gets hold of a copy and, and streams and buys and, and all that sort of stuff as well. But uh, uh, John, just a few more questions, if you don't mind. Now, obviously, um, sure. within the band Doc and in the former members, there's been there's been tensions in the past and things like that. But things seem a, a lot a lot mellower now. I spoke to, to George not too long ago and he says, obviously, <laughs> Doc and, and Lynch Mob, they do gigs together and things like that. So yeah. um, things are a lot nicer on that front between everybody nowadays then, yeah? Oh yeah, you know we've we've done like thirty or something shows with George. You know, it's it's been great. Everyone gets along, and we have a good time, and it's it's been really great. And I think it's been great for the fans. Yeah, you know, 
Absolutely. Because I, I think that it's been something special for him coming up. <laughs> Absolutely. And then just one last question. I've got one here from Connor Butler. He says, I'm a big fan of yours. I want to know, will you be getting a signature guitar model? Thank you, Connor. Um, I had one through Fender, uh, through Charvel years ago. They, they, did, they didn't do that many, but it was, um, they sold them all out. Um, you know, it's funny you mention it because just last night I spoke to uh, Mike McGregor, who was my A&R guy when I was at Fender. Um, and he was the guy that did that signature guitar model for me. But, you know, I haven't really thought about it. I, I would do it if I was approached to do it. Yeah, you know, um, but yeah. I, I would do it if someone approached me to do it and, and, and wanted to do it the right way, not, not a cheapy way. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us here on VRP Rocks and uh, uh, best of luck with the new album as well. And is there going to be a tour? Are you coming to, the, to, to Europe, the UK? Yeah, we're planning, excuse me, <clears throat> we're going to be coming there, I think, in August. I don't know about the UK, but we're coming to Europe. It is the plan is or in August, and I think we're going to do Japan. So. That we're going to be touring a lot on this album starting 2024. And we have um, four more videos in the works, too. We shot four more. So um, if we do the next four, that'll be seven videos total for a 10-song record, which is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Wonderful speaking with you. There you go, the brilliant John Levin there. I hope you enjoyed that. Check out the band's new album, Heaven Comes Down. It's available to buy, stream and download from wherever you get your music from, basically. Support these bands while we still can. Anyway, that's it for me and this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all the episodes. Loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. They come out every single Monday. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It makes a really big difference, really does. Check out the VRP Rocks YouTube channel as well and give us a like, follow, or subscribe on the social media channels too. Just search for VRP Rocks everywhere. So until next week then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.